Thank you for waiting. We're now boarding all passengers on No Blackout Dates Airlines. All aboard No Blackout Dates to... Wait. Where the hell are we going? No Blackout Dates to your Blackout Dates. Good to see you. Good to see you. How you doing? Nothing, nothing really and truly all day long like 7-Eleven. have six tickets to space what a thing to say yeah you might be the first person to high five tom cruise in space by the time i fly the vaccine will be out and we will have massive parties afterwards welcome back to another episode of no blackout dates i'm evan i'm tim and for all you travelers out there we've got a guest who's gonna pretty much put us all to shame uh, matthias mauer is with us he's an astronaut with the european space agency He's currently waiting for his first space flight, which is scheduled to take place fall of 2021 aboard the SpaceX Crew-3 to the International Space Station. Sure beats a trip to Bali, doesn't it? Sure does. He'll be just the 12th German astronaut ever to reach space, and he's also the star of a local campaign to send him into space with some home-cooked cuisine. He's a native of the German region of Saarland. And restaurants in the Saarland are competing to send Matthias into space with their signature cuisine. And people are voting to decide what the winner will be. So a lot of pressure on Matthias for this one because the Germans take their food pretty seriously. Maybe even more pressure than uh, actually going into space. Yeah, I mean, I imagine that the pressure is on given how much thought he seems to have put into this competition to get the meal into space. Um, and, and I've got to say, I thought this before we got on this episode and I, it's been confirmed fivefold now, but if you ever want to feel like you're doing nothing with your life, spend an hour on a call with a, with a, uh, materials engineer who is about to go into space. Oh yeah. I mean, we we get into a, a pattern here where we kind of think like, oh yeah, okay. We have a pretty cool job. Like we get to travel for a living and like meet cool people and, you kind of fool yourself to thinking you're doing something, you know, useful. And then you talk to someone like Matthias, who's going up it to the International Space Station for six months to work on potential uh, medical cures for diseases and do all kinds of crazy stuff that's actually going to help humanity. And that just makes you, it's it's cool. And it's great to hear about, but then it gives you a little bit of introspection and you're like, God damn it, what am I doing with myself? Yeah, it is. And it, even more so when it turns out that he's such a cool down to earth guy. Good pun, Tim. Uh, the irony there is not lost on me. Yeah, he's he was such an easy person to talk to. Uh, great conversationalist, great dude. Seems like he'd be a really nice guy to sit and have a beer with. Uh, this is this is my favorite conversation so far. Wow, favorite conversations, big praise, Tim, big praise. But I mean, it's well deserved because uh, Matthias is just. He, he at one point actually he asked us uh, what country we would want him to take a picture of uh, for us from space. Not what landscape or what monument, what country. And just that question itself shows the staggering sense of scale of space that is just so hard to grasp, I think, until you're up there. So we're going to hold them to that. We give them our answers and we're going to expect those pictures in uh, 2022, Matthias. Yeah, one photo, one country. That's that's not happening anywhere but from space. And, and the, yeah, the scale is the overarching theme of this conversation, I would say, because he brings to mind so much stuff that you wouldn't even think of, like the things that you, what goes with you, what can't go with you. It's, it's mind blowing. Yeah. Now, Tim, I know we, uh, we discussed this a little bit, but what, what would you 
bring to space if you could bring any one thing to space assuming that you're going to have a fair amount of time where you need to occupy your thoughts what i would really want to bring is uh probably a journal to be able to write down what i'm feeling what i'm thinking as i look back at the earth tim has a lot of feelings i do i'm I'm an emotional guy deep guy deep deep what what would what would you bring I'd bring a DVD player with like a box set of the Cosmos show and just watch Carl Sagan talk to me about space for the six months or whatever that I'm up there. I mean, does it get any better? Like watching the Cosmos in the Cosmos that like talk about a mind blowing experience. Yeah, for sure. Well, we're going to stop rambling because you want to hear a real astronaut talk about space not a couple of babbling idiots who don't know the difference between a solar system and a galaxy, let's be honest. So let's get right into it with Matthias. All right, welcome to No Blackout Dates, Matthias. Thanks for being with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so I, I don't even know where to start. There's, you got quite an exciting life right now. You're preparing to go into space next year. Um, you're part of this food initiative, the Maurer Menu, where... Uh, you're going to get sent. There's a competition going on to send you into space to the International Space Station with a local uh, German cuisine from your area of the Saarland. Um, and there's people are voting to determine which is the winning menu item. That's exciting. What does it mean to be able to take a piece of home up into space with you? Does that kind of ease your nerves a little bit as you prepare to do this? Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, we're we're training to fly to space. So basically during two years before the flight and six months during the flight, I'm away from home. And uh, so being in space and just like being so remote away from everything, my family, my friends, uh, I think food is a really important factor to keep the morale of the troop high, of the of the astronauts high. And so everyone puts a lot of emphasis in selecting the food that one likes. And um, by now, everyone tries to bring a little bit of his home special food and to share it with the colleagues and friends uh, for special opportunities, special days. And that's why we thought like, okay, I would like to bring something from my home region, the Saarland in southwestern Germany, near Luxembourg, near the French border. And um, people always ask me, like, what are you going to take? And I said, like, I, I don't know. You're like, what should I take? And that's where we started the competition. So it was your indecisiveness that led to the competition. Well, I think um, traditionally the food from that area, um, well, it's a mining area, heavy steel industry. Um, so the food used to be very solid, very, a lot of calories, but less uh, cuisine. That's how most people recognize our kitchen by the past one. But by now, in that region, we have uh, per capita the highest number of Michelin cook stars. Oh, wow. Uh, Michelin stars cooks, that's the way. <laughs> and so it's like we have really good restaurants and people don't know it on the outside. So I thought, like, um, why not combining the two facts, making a little bit of uh, publicity for my home region while at the same time getting a superb food um, and flying it into space. So that's why I thought like, okay, you choose what's the best of the region. What is the new food that stands for the region? So in, in your region, given that it is more of a, a, a blue collar area, are you kind of an outlier as an astronaut or is it something that everybody you know there is like, oh, of course, he became an astronaut, of course. 
Uh, oh no, no, absolutely not. It's like people were really surprised. It's like wow. It's like it's it's also a motivation for the people in the area to see like. Wow, somebody who comes from a blue-collar origin um, can actually make it, can make it out of this world and into space. So you're from a pretty small town. It's a uh, is it Saint Wendel? How how bad I how bad I butcher that pronunciation? <laughs> yes, <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. It's a very good pronunciation. Um, I'm actually not even from the small town. I'm from a remote village, like 10 kilometers away. My village had 1,500 inhabitants. Wow. So are you like a minor celebrity when you go home, like among the people you grew up with? Yeah, by now, yes. So it's yes. But I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's quite easy to be in that area a celebrity. Was there a moment, because I know you have a doctorate and are a scientist. Was there a moment where you knew space was going to be your future? I always say, for me, it wasn't the dream of the small kid. For me, it was the dream of the adult. Um, it's obviously I was always interested in in space and in aviation, all this stuff. Um, not very far from my home area is the the biggest, um, the largest U.S. Air Force base uh, outside of the U.S. It's Rammstein. So some of your listeners may know where the, the area is and. So basically, when I was a kid, uh, I saw always the, these fast planes racing in the sky above me, like dogfighting. And I thought like, wow, I want to be a pilot when I grow up. Um, well, it um, didn't really work out. So I chose to, to study and to become an engineer. So one day I saw on the news when coming back home from work, uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, is looking for new astronauts. And I thought like, wait, what's the job of an astronaut? And then I thought a little bit about it. It's working in an international environment. That's really what I like because I studied in several European countries. I also did internships in Asia and in Latin America. And so I like traveling. And, um, and um, well, you also have technology on the limit of what technology is able to do. Today, an astronaut is not the, the test pilot. It's more the scientist in space. And well, I'm a scientist. And um, well, there's also a lot of adventure with it. So like combining these four factors, that's for me what the astronaut job offers. And I thought like, wait, that's exactly what I like. And uh, so I signed up. You were one of 10,000, there were 10,000 applicants, correct? And you were one of like a dozen or so that were picked. Well, it's um, it's yes and no. It's like I was one of um, almost 10,000 applicants and in the end, uh, there were 10 left who passed all exams and were ready to be um, taken by ESA to start the astronaut career. But then the head of ESA said, like, guys, I have good and bad news. The bad news is um, I only have six tickets to space, so I only can hire six. And you, Matthias, and you other three guys, uh, I will not take you and you will not become astronaut. Oh, no. You convinced me. You're good guys. I would like to hire you for ESA. And uh, so my three colleagues who were not taken said like mm, either astronaut or nothing. And I said, I give it a chance because uh, I, I want to work in space. It's so fascinating, this uh, work environment and I can shape the future and influence it. So I started working there and for four years I had different jobs in ESA. And then the boss of ESA came back to me and said like, hmm, we just extended the lifetime of ISS and uh, I actually could need uh, one more astronaut and uh, 
maybe you're still interested. So I said like, yeah. I only have six tickets to space. What a, what a thing to say. It's like, it's like, you know, might as well get a standby ticket to go on an airplane. You, you, you never know. It's like you get a cheaper, cheaper flight and you get to go out, go out to space. Yeah, so I got the standby ticket. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you have to then call your parents and be like, mom, well, I got the standby ticket to space. So we're going to have to wait and see. Ran out of tickets. <laughs> so your, your decision to become an astronaut was sort of equally motivated by your love of science as well as your uh, love of travel. Yes, exactly. And I mean, I did round the world trips before. Um, and so when I go to space now, I'm, I can't wait to see all the places that I visited on the ground, like from from space again and to relive again the good memories that I had like traveling the world yeah so what's your favorite place you've been here on earth great question it's um well I think if you love nature and the most beautiful country I've been to was New Zealand it's uh, almost a paradise wherever you go the most adventure I found for me was Asia I love India India it's like chaotic and it's vibrant and all the smell of the spices and and all the different like traditions that I don't understand uh, it's just it's just fun to watch everything do you think that going to space will almost ruin travel for you here on earth because like once you've once you've done that it's kind of like the bar is set so high, isn't it? No, actually, it's it's so funny. It's uh, when I joined ESA, uh, the head of the European Astronaut Center, he was about to retire. And that guy has been twice to space. So when he learned that I did around the world trip before for one year, he's like, he was in my office every day. He's like, Matthias, uh, what shall I do when I retire? You need to you need to give me all your in the information that you have. I want to travel the world again and again. And there are other astronauts who said exactly the same. How about nerves? Uh, people get nervous when they're traveling, but do you think this is going to kind of wipe that out if, you, if you're feeling something? I, I can't even imagine what the uh, preparation and the, of the nerves of going into space are, but I imagine it's going to dwarf anything you felt in the past. Probably, but uh, you know that I applied in 2008 to become an astronaut, and, and so uh, it was up and down, and the feeling goes like it's yeah. like... I'm preparing now for years to this, uh, for the space flight. And uh, so it's like all the energy, all the adrenaline that you have in your blood, it's, it, you can't keep it at 100%. So I, at the moment, I'm super calm. But I believe the day I'm actually in the spacecraft and uh, the rocket engines light up and I feel the vibration of the engine, the acceleration, I think that's when I believe and then... That's when the adrenaline kicks back in. I'm sure. Tell us a little bit about the mission itself. So you're going to be going up to the International Space Station. What exactly is the mission's goal? How long are you going to be there uh, potentially? And what's what are, you, what are you going to be doing up there? We do require our listeners to have advanced engineering degrees before they're allowed to download. So <laughs> they should be able to follow along. Yeah, so the International Space Station has already been in space for 20 years. We just celebrated this um, like last week. And uh, so I will fly, hopefully, a six-month mission. That is the standard now. And I'll be going up on one of the new American um, spacecrafts. It might be a SpaceX Dragon capsule, or it might also be the new Boeing capsule that's still open. Um, I hope they're both ready by the end of next year. And then the mission would be six months in space, doing lots of research, science experiments, technology uh, validations, technology demonstrations and so on average every european astronaut or any any american astronaut as well um, takes part in roughly 100 to 150 experiments in these six months and um, some of that is fundamental science 
and we will only see in 10, 20 years the outcome. Other stuff is really applied. And uh, for example, we run um, tests on new metals, new materials. And so we have special conditions in space that gives us special results. And we can use these samples that we produce in space to, um, to improve our computer simulations for casting new metals, for material properties. We also are now um, 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 producing protein crystals in space, and these are really helpful if you want to look for new um, uh, medications against new diseases that are so far like untreatable or uncurable. And do you know who the people that you're going to be going with yet? Uh, I know some of the people. Um, I don't know yet the Russian, the Soyuz crew. I know half of my crew. Uh, it's also not fully decided. I know the crew before me. It's crew two who will launch at the end of March or in April next year. And uh, so my French colleague, Thomas Pesquet, um, is also part of that crew uh, who will fly next year in spring. Um, also um, a Japanese colleague and two American colleagues. You really have to like these people, don't you? If you're going to be going up into space with them and spending six months, like it's like you don't want to be going. It's like going to sleepaway camp with six people that you hate, and you just have to share a cabin for <laughs> close quarters for six months nonstop. You better <laughs> like these guys. Yeah, I mean, it's like we're all like-minded, and uh, so we train together. We know each other, and and so there is a lot of opportunity for team bonding and. I mean, we all love to be astronauts, so it's they're all good guys, and I don't have any worries that I won't get along. But then the ISS is also a huge spacecraft, so you could easily spend the entire day in your module doing research and not seeing the others. So by the end of the day, you are actually happy seeing them and eating together, and that is the the, the bonding moment of the day. Say so like, okay, let's eat together, let's talk about the events of the day, what worked well, what didn't work well, and um, how shall we decide on this or the other topic uh, as a crew? I was going to say, does does ESA have kind of a healthy competition with NASA, with other space agencies, Russia? Well, we don't have we don't have a competition with NASA or with Russia. It's the way we do business or how the way how we cooperate is um, we barter. So, for example, when I fly to the ISS, uh, we don't. It's on a on a US rocket. But we don't pay in euros or in dollar. What we do uh, is we deliver hardware, space hardware, to uh, NASA, and NASA says, "Okay, for this hardware, I give you one uh, seat on a rocket." How do you go about planning in the days in advance of of the launch? And I imagine you're still figuring this out. But how do you pack for something like this? And how do you prepare yourself to get into a routine once you're up there? The good thing is, like, I don't do anything. It's all done by others. Yeah. You're allowed to bring uh, so many T-shirts, so many trousers. So, for example, for, for the six months on space, I will have six pair of pants. Um, so one one pair of trousers per month. Um, and uh, I will have every three days a new T-shirt um, and, and so on. And I believe every three days I get a new underwear. The girls every two days. Um and so there are rules for everything. And my uh, life in space, it's fully uh, reglamented. So I have a schedule and that schedule is prepared on the ground by specialists. And they see like who can do which experiment at what time, because you need energy, you need resources. So you, you cannot run all the experiments at the same time. And um, 
So this is a perfect schedule. It takes a lot of work um, to elaborate it. And I just open it in the morning and I do exactly what I'm planned for. So bringing it back to food for a second. So whichever meal wins the competition, the Sauerland's competition, how is it? Just, how, how much of that meal are you going to be actually consuming up there? Because it's not going to be an, like a one-time thing or an every single meal thing. So how, exactly what's the quantity of that cuisine that you're going to be eating compared to other just regular space food? So the food that we get in space... Um... It's a part of it, a third of it, you can actually select by yourself. And two thirds is a standard food selection, a menu that NASA, uh, the NASA Food Lab prepares and sends up. And it's based on the experience from all the astronauts. So um, the special food, the one third, um, I can choose. I can choose from the available Japanese, European, special Russian and, and American space food. I also can say like, I like that food, that commercial product that uh, is available in this supermarket, please buy me that can or this pouch. And then the NASA Food Lab um, provides that one. Um, for this special silent food, it is a recipe that is now developed by a cook. And that cook um, is, a, is an expert for producing fresh food. But uh, bringing that food up to space requires that the food is good for up to two years. So you need another specialist who translates the recipe into a new recipe Wow! Uh, with the result that the food tastes identically during the next two years. When you're training and you're preparing with the other um, astronauts, is there kind of a, a social scene that goes along with that? Is there bonding and, 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 and light moments or is it super serious all the time? No, you can't be super serious. And uh, I mean, we're, we're humans. So it's like definitely usually you meet in the evening and you, you have a beer together or a drink. And But now in COVID times, I have to admit, it's I live like a monk for months uh, because, I mean, nobody wants to risk to uh, get the infection and to lose the mission. And I mean, I told you before, I've been waiting for years for this mission. And you never know if you get infected, will it hit you really hard or will it hit you only a little bit? And um, so I don't want to run the risk. And so we had less social activity this time. But uh, I'm, I'm sure by the time I fly, the vaccine will be out and we will have massive parties afterwards. <laughs> yes, hopefully everywhere in the world. Yeah, massive parties. You were talking earlier a little bit about... Um, your nerves kind of going up there and how it kind of fluctuates and how you kind of getting used to that idea. What realistically, what is the the most probable kind of worst case scenario for an astronaut? Like what actually, given all the safety procedures and the training, what actually can go wrong once you're up there? Once you're up there. Yeah, okay. Because like answering your question, what's the worst part? I would say that somebody comes right on the launch pad. So like, sorry, Matthias, we need to swap you out. <laughs> so that, that is. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, of course. The worst part is yeah. not being able to go at all. But, yeah. Um, I mean, the worst part in space. Uh, well, I mean, there's the everyday little stress um, that you mess up an experiment. Um, people worked hard for years to bring an experiment up to space. And so it's sometimes student careers depend on the outcome of the experiment. So I'm, I'm always kind of like, oh, hopefully I'm not the guy who, dis who destroys this experiment and who messes up the science 
uh, when people work so hard for it. That's the small, the everyday concern that we that I have. The biggest concern is obviously you have a massive event like a fire on board, or you have a leak on board, and uh, or you need to abandon the station. And and with all the space debris that we have now, that something hits the station, and and but I mean, these are the big disasters that Hollywood likes. <laughs> right, that's pretty unlikely. Um, being an astronaut, I would imagine is I mean similar to traveling for a living. It's tough to maintain your relationships and uh, friendships back home when you're away for training all the time. And then especially when you're gone for, you know, six months or more for a mission. I mean, we experienced this a little bit and we talk about it all the time on the podcast, but for you, it must be like that kind of feeling of separation on steroids. Although I think it would be, uh, it, it would be tough to compare flying to, you know, Canada to, to flying, you know, preparing to go to space. I, I, I think you, you have a more justified cause for being gone. For long periods of time, <laughs> maybe you have more fun. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's the going to space to do scientific experiments that will ultimately help all of humanity. Versus, I want to go to Bali and just like hang out for a week and write about it. Well, uh, what what uh, how how regimented is your is your clothing list? If we sent you a no blackout date shirt, can you bring it? <laughs> well, I honestly I cannot decide. Uh, there are people who decide what I can ah. bring along, and because yeah, these questions come occasionally. I'm sure. I'm sure we're not the first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are roots for everything. So uh, yeah. If you could take only one thing, like one kind of luxury item up to space, what what would you choose to take? Uh, oh, it's a good question. It's like I I tell you what luxury item I would like to have. It's. Uh, I would like to have some shaving uh, aftershave uh, alcohol because uh, I mean it's like I'm having this kind of skin issues. So whenever I shave, I get a light rash. But um, but that's not allowed on the ISS. So you cannot bring alcohol um, aftershave. So um, it's a luxury item. But the uh, air that we have in there, the um, <clears throat> it always gets refreshed and recycled, and so uh, all this equipment cannot handle the alcohol, and so we just cannot bring it. So this becomes a luxury item for me. <laughs> it is on Earth. Basic things that people take for granted that you're are now going to be something that you're going to yearn for for six months straight. That first beer when you get back is going to be quite good, I imagine. Uh, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Can you exercise at all up there, or is it? Uh... You actually have to. You have to. Uh, in zero gravity, you are almost like laying in bed in a like all day long, and your body is very clever. If you lay all day long in bed, your body decides, oh, I don't need so many muscles, I don't need these bones because uh, there's not so much stress here. Um, so the body dissolves all that and um so we age in space 30 times faster than on the ground oh my you've God. Heard, like, from older people there's a disease that's called osteoporosis elder women always have it or like 70 80 percent of them have it also some men and um so we suffer from the same disease but 30 times faster um obviously i don't want to return after six months like having aged uh, 15 years <laughs> um, so I, I need to do sports and I do uh, one hour of cardio exercise. We have a treadmill or we also have a, a cycle, the bicycle ergonometer. And, um, and I also need to do weightlifting to kind of cheat my body and tell him like, look, 
you need the bones don't dissolve the bones it's not weightlifting it's against a, a force like a, a pressure device but it has the same effect as weightlifting damn it's going to be like the rick van winkle effect you're going to come back in six months and you're going to have aged like 70 years and we're not don't even going to recognize me, you no. <laughs> you have a long flowy white beard yeah. <laughs> what's what is the what, what are you looking forward to the most about the trip what's kind of like the one moment that you're looking forward to and keeping you going yeah so i have a very very clear picture of the very first moments on the international space station so i hope when i open the hatch and i float in there just free floating for more than 20 seconds in a row that's what we can do on on the ground in training in special uh, planes but just floating the entire time and then you float to the window we have a large window which is called the cupola and uh, there we can watch the earth gliding below us and so i will do around the world trip in 90 minutes i will have 16 times a day sunset and sunrise and so i think my first 90 minutes will be just there floating and enjoying our planet and you can technically say you visited every country in the world then after that right i mean You've at least seen them. Yeah, it's like a little loophole. Yeah, yeah. Well, I didn't get the stamp in my passport. <laughs> very cool. Tim, unless you have another, any more questions, we can go to our next very brief segment, which is listener questions. I think we're good. All right. So let me just bring this up. Yeah, so we, at each episode, we have a listener submit a question, a travel-related question that we uh, usually try to keep pretty on topic, and we pose to our guests and get their input. This one is pretty uh pretty on point so my question to your listeners would be which places that you have been on the ground would you like me to photograph from space oh okay so well this is this is a listener question for you but we can ask ah, oh, okay ask. <laughs> okay <laughs> i mean that that's a good topic though we're gonna see if we can get some feedback to that yeah i like that <laughs> wait say that again so it was which uh which place on earth would they like you to photograph from space. That's that's a good one. Yes. Tim, what do you think? Yeah. And why? Why should why is this place special? So how close could you get with a photograph? So if you, I'm, I'm imagining you like stand like sitting on the International Space Station, you kind of just have a pretty wide. You can't like really zero in on uh, like a single country, can you? I mean, how how? Yes, you can. You can. You can. Well, I mean, you float, and so we have massive cameras. I believe eight hundred millimeters lenses. It's what we have. No, yeah, of course, that was a dumb question. I was picturing you with like a little like disposable camera. Completely, not even thinking of like all the sophisticated technology that you have on the ISS. Obviously, you can zoom in. Yeah, we have the best Nikon cameras that you can imagine, and and we have lenses on board which are more expensive than my car uh, so <laughs> so um yeah it's you can there are brilliant photos night photos of certain cities and you actually from space you can still see the difference between eastern and western germany because the the lamps the streeting illumination is kind of different in berlin eastern and western part and you also see the difference between north and south korea from space because north korea is completely dark south korea is like yeah very very bright if i had to choose a country i think it would be togo in west africa because my wife spent three years there in the peace corps um and i would love to have her be able to revisit that cool so togo is on my list it's very small togo is about the size of like rhode island so <laughs> it's, it's, you'd have to really zoom in but 
Yeah, people always ask, like, can you see the Chinese wall from space? And the answer is you cannot. Yeah, they always say you can. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. And the pyramids, uh, you can see them. But my colleagues also told me it's, it's, they're not so easy to spot because, I mean, you fly pretty fast, 28,000 kilometers per hour, and uh, you need to stabilize the camera and you need to know where to look for. And depending on the angle of the sun, you don't have a sharp contrast. Is there anything else that you can see from space, like these, these big kind of natural wonder type monuments that are easier than the pyramids? Yeah, so, so definitely. I mean, you can see all the, the major cities during the night, during the day. You can, well, Ayers Rock, something like that. Um, I also, my, on my list, I have all the places that I went to during my around the world trip, like Machu Picchu, um, like uh, national parks in Africa, um, famous places in Europe, like the island of Thera in, you know, the volcanic island that exploded 3,800 years ago which is now called Santorini in, in Greece. So these places, I hope I will be able to see from space. What about uh, like the Great Barrier Reef? Can you see something like that? Yes, yes, yes. It's a massive color contrast. That's a very easy target. That's my choice. That's what I'm yeah. going with, going with that. Yeah. Very cool. Damn, well, that, that question was a lot better than the one I was going to ask you, but... <laughs> so you're a, uh, so you're a photography guy? You're into, you're into photography? Yeah, I love, yeah. I love photography. And maybe during my mission there will even be two hollywood movies be done up there well one hollywood and one from the russian side wow maybe you've heard there are rumors um that tom cruise wants to fly to space to make a space movie <laughs> um well it's rumors but it, a rumor that was like enunciated by the head of nasa so i believe there is some truth to it would you be in the movie to some degree if he's up there while you are that would be pretty cool. I think there's a chance that we might overlap, but uh, I'm I'm not an actor. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I have no idea who. Forget the experiment. You're going to be an extra in a Tom Cruise movie now. Yeah, you might be the first person to high five Tom Cruise in space. Yeah, well, I think there are other people with him in the capsule that will high five him. But then there's also <laughs> the Russian side. The Russians also enunciated to make the first space movie, and they're currently uh, casting. An actor. It was on, on Twitter. I read it the last days. So there will be two space movies potentially be, be done, be filmed in space by the end of next year. Tim, thoughts on uh, applying and trying out for these movies? Might maybe I'm be able to join him up there? Might be my best chance to get into space. So. I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know that, like um, when I travel to India, there is the chance that you can participate in a Bollywood movie. And that was one of my dreams when I started traveling. I want to be a Bollywood actor. And I almost made it, but it wasn't a Bollywood movie. It was just a commercial for Union Express or something like that. I feel like you would be a shoe-in for Bollywood after coming back from space, though. I think if you just called them up and were like, hey, I'm coming back from space and I'm coming straight to Delhi. Straight to Bollywood. I need to be in this movie. Yeah. I'm not even going home to see my family first, just straight to Bollywood. <laughs> I'm not a good dancer, so I think that's a requirement <laughs> for a Bollywood movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. Anyway, the question that we uh, that was submitted to us was from Jerry from Texas. He says, last time I was in Munich, I went on a date with a German girl. I thought it was going reasonably well. And at the end of the night, I said, I'll text you tomorrow. She said, no, you don't have to. You are very nice, but I don't want to see you again. Thanks anyway. 
I was pretty shocked, but also weirdly appreciated her honesty. I know Germans have a reputation for being honest and direct. Is this true or is it just a stereotype? It is so true. I mean, I mean that girl was uh, well, very direct and uh, not all German girls are like this. An extreme example. But, but I, I tell you, um, from my own experience, um, when I come to the US and I do astronaut training, and then obviously I'm a human, so like when I run an experiment, I make errors, mistakes. And uh, in Germany, people tell you, you did this wrong and you need to change it. So, okay, okay, I did this wrong, so I can improve. In the US, nobody tells me you did this wrong. They always say like, oh, very good, very good. You, you're a good guy. And, and I, as a German, if somebody tells me you did good, I tend to believe that I did good. <laughs> you know where you stand with with Germans. If the Americans are complimenting you, you're like, is this, what does that mean? What do you mean I, I did good? Like, what, what does that mean I need improvement? Like Americans are big fans of what we call the compliment sandwich where you put a good thing, then the bad thing in the middle, and then another good thing at the end. Yeah. So I, I always tell my uh, US instructors, that, like, you need to be like blunt with me. Just tell me w what you liked and what you didn't like. <laughs> so There is a certain charm, I think, in a culture that is very direct. Is I think it's jarring at first if you're not used to it, but then it's it's very refreshing once you realize there's no games. There's no kind of, you're not getting the runaround. You're just, what you see is what you get. And if someone doesn't like you, they're not going to string you along for two weeks and not reply to your text. They're just going to straight up say, you know what? I don't like you. Don't text me. So it's kind of nice. Yeah. It's, but she was definitely an exception. So they're also the other one. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. I, I would like to add that uh, the Germans aren't uh, most direct. You go to the Netherlands and uh, they are, even me as a German, I'm shocked like how direct they are. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't know that. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, Mateus. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it as well. Always oh, good to talk about traveling. Yes. Yeah. A little lighthearted. We, we always thought we think we have like good jobs where you get to travel. And then we talk to someone like you and we're like, damn, our jobs are just shit. We're not doing anything for humanity. I'm pretty sure you do. <laughs> At least you share your knowledge. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's been great talking to you and good luck on the mission. We hope you get up there and everything goes smooth. All right. Thank you very much and have a pleasant rest of the day. Yeah. You too. Thanks so much. Bye, Matthias. Bye. Bye bye. All right, time for hot takes, Tim. Okay, it's hot takes time. You ready? Because I got some pretty hot takes today. The hottest of takes. I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to warm up a little bit. It's cold this morning. Question number one, are food trucks bullshit? No, I love food trucks. And actually, I would say that as somebody who really appreciates traveling in Asia and, and Latin America, where there is street food abundantly available, food trucks are like America's version of street food. Well, so I'll ask you this. What makes a food truck, what makes food from a food truck better than food from a restaurant? Is it actually better or is it just the experience of getting it from a food truck? It's the experience. I would honestly say in many cases, the food is worse than if you were to get it in a restaurant. But it's the fact that you can be at a brewery or you can be at a festival or you can be in downtown in any major city and get some food without having to spend an hour of your time going to a restaurant. I like that. So it's the accessibility and convenience of it. And it's the like I like I, you know what my wife and I for a long time talked about having a food truck. I don't think I would ever actually want to do that, but it's kind of cool to be able to, you know, yeah, I'm going to serve food at this brewery today. Then I'm going to park in this office complex tomorrow. Like 
it's probably pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, the convenience aside, I think the whole premise is you're being served food by a restaurant on wheels, and that's the novelty, and that is what was cool about it, but I just feel like they're riding the hype from 2015, and I guess I'm just surprised that it's still going strong. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a trendy thing right now, but I think it's also practical in a lot of ways. I mean, I don't know if a food truck festival itself is practical, but I think an individual food truck going to an area where people are working like a construction site or an office complex and needing food, I think that's useful. But I think I think I think the trend I think the trend will eventually wear off. All right, so we pretty much agree it's a novelty trend, it's convenient. It's having its day right now. Food trucks are having a moment, but I don't get the hype. They're fine. Food's okay. Overpriced. Not enough of it, but good on them for doing what they're doing. All right, next one. This is an interesting one. If you colonized the moon and had to set up a government there, what kind of government would it be? So Tim goes to the moon. Sounds like my favorite children's book title. Tim goes to the moon and... He has to, maybe you have a few other people, but it's your job to set up a government. What does that government look like? What's that society look like? I mean, I would like to think that I would base it off of what is working the best on earth, which are smaller nations with a lot of, uh, a a lot of services. Like, you know, it's so stereotypical to, to call out Scandinavia, but their model's working. So you would just tax the shit out of everyone else on the moon and then like give them a ton of social services? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, okay. So I saw like a, a, a democracy, basically. It would be a democracy, yeah. I, I, I certainly wouldn't run it as a two-party system uh, like the US. I, I would want a Congress that's more inclusive, that has representatives from multiple parties and factions, such as what many European countries use. I'd probably go for whatever that government was in Brave New World, the, the world state, world state. Yeah, I do that. I do the world state, the moon state, though, I'd call it. Everyone's just getting fucked up on Soma all the time. Everyone's feeling good. It's like, oh, is it like a hallucinogenic? So, yeah, I mean, no one has real emotions. Like everyone that like, dulls your emotion. So everyone just be wandering around in like a drug-induced stupor. But I figure in that case, no one will really have any idea or care whether or not I managed to set up like a good or effective government. So that's probably the most realistic avenue for me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I don't know that I'd be, uh, I would, I would only want to be a part of the organization of it. I have absolutely no interest in being part of running government. That sounds awful to me. So you would just organize everything and then gracefully step back. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, well, that's it for me. Okay. On the other side, Evan, hot seat. Would you ever consider going to space alone? Like uh, assuming I have the expertise to do that and like I am an engineer or scientist? Yeah, like if you were an astronaut and they, were, they needed a one-man uh, crew to go up and do a mission for a short period of time. Oh, the loneliness though. Like, oh man, being up in space by yourself. So you're the only one at the ISS. You're the only one up there. It's kind of like, I have not read Tom DeLonge's children's book, The Lonely Astronaut. You haven't? I thought you co-wrote it. I, I No, but I'll be buying it for my kid. Um, I, I, you know, I feel like the fact that I have taken such a new view on myself after, you know, solo traveling 
to faraway places, I think I could deal with it, provided I had safety recourses, training, and emergency uh, stuff taken care of. But like a couple of weeks, yes. Um, six months, I, I don't think so. Yeah, I don't know about that. But a couple of weeks, yeah, I would do that for sure. Okay. And uh, last one: if you were going to the space station for six months, what would you miss the most? Oh, easy podcasting. You think I would leave our billions of listeners high and dry, Tim, for six months? No. Leave them without content? Leave them without our hot takes? Come on. Come on. And obviously, I would miss like real food. I mean, I can't go a week without having pizza, so I don't even want to imagine what six months without pizza. I mean, like real pizza, fresh pizza, not like pizza in a vacuum-sealed bag. I don't even want to imagine what that would be like. So podcasting and pizza, two Ps, two, two essential Ps of human existence. Or at least this human's existence. All right. Well, that's what I got. And I'm going to go eat some of this real food right now. Dude, real food. Underrated. Real food is not bullshit. That's one thing we can agree on. Real food is definitely not bullshit. All right. Thanks for checking out another episode of No Blackout Dates. And thanks to Matias for coming on and being, I would have to say to this point, my favorite guest that's come on to our pod. So head over to Apple, leave us a review. We really want to know what you think. And we would also really like to know what country you would like Matthias to photograph from space. And if you could be up in space, what country would you photograph? We will see you back here next week. I'm Tim. I'm Evan. We'll see you guys next week.